everyone welcome to the radical reverend show of course as always these days taping outside the radio station itself coming from home and today uh for our queer uh episode which of course we do once a month um we have the great honor and privilege of speaking to junior joplin now she may not be a household name to any of you out there right now in radio land but trust me she will be uh, she was uh, featured on CBC among other mainstream media broadcasts. And why? Why? Well, on June 14th, Junior Joplin came out as herself, as a trans woman, to her congregation, Lorne Park Baptist Church. And we are going to play you that, and I consider it historic, historic sermon uh, that she uh, wrote and delivered on that day. But we're, we're also gonna to talk to Junia just about all the years that fled up to this moment, what's happened since June 14th and her hopes, her dreams, and also get uh, Junia herself to introduce that sermon, which we'll hear at the second part of this radio show. Before we get into that interview, I just wanna thank you all out there uh, for listening to the Radical Reverend Show. Thank you for your comments. Keep them coming. I'm on Twitter, I'm on Instagram, I'm on Facebook. You can reach me all sorts of places. Let me know what you think about this and any of our podcasts slash radio broadcasts. Always happy to hear from you. And thank you again during our fundraising week for those who actually donated. Uh, Junia, an absolute pleasure to have you on the Radical Reverend Show, welcome. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. It's a real pleasure and an honor to be here with you. So let's start at the beginning of the life of Junior. <laughs> Sounds like a book. Uh, maybe it will be one day. Um, uh, so uh, where were you born? Tell me about your upbringing. What was that like? Um, I was born in a small town in western North Carolina, um, somewhere between like Charlotte and Asheville, North Carolina. Um, uh, and I grew, I grew up in that same small town. Most of my, you know, I come from, um, a couple of really large families and, uh, most of those families are still within an hour of the County where we grew up, um, grew up on what used to be my grandparents' farm. Um, certainly not, it, it probably a little like some of these Southern Ontario farms. I've visited some of the farms out West in Alberta and, you know, they're like 20,000 acres. I think at the most, my grandfather and grandmother maybe had about 50 acres, but it felt like a big farm to me. And um, so over time, uh, my family built a home on a parcel in the middle of that farm. And I grew up, just, you know, playing in the woods and climbing in the rafters in my granddad's barn. And, um, uh, there was a little piece of adjacent property that sometime around, I think, sometime in the 1910s, I think, um, was given or sold, but ended up in the uh, hands of a uh, group of Baptists starting a new church. And um, my, my family had been part of that church kind of from the beginning, and I grew up attending uh, that little church. And it's still there. I haven't been back in several years, but um, I, I grew up there. Um, it was, I can remember um, the week after I was baptized. Actually, I don't, I don't so much remember this as we have printed record of it. Um, 
my mother kept the, uh, of course, the bulletin from the Sunday I was baptized um, and the Sunday after, which which listed that I had been baptized the week before. And there was Virginia, this, how old were you when you were baptized? Oh, gosh, I was too young, really. <laughs> um, I was seven years old. Um, we, um, you know, I, I don't I don't know how how uh, how far in depth to get about this, but, you know, Baptists. Um, practice what we would call like adult baptism or believers baptism and um there's always been questions about like when when a person is ready and a lot of the folks that i talk to about baptism are at least 12 years old um but for me in that little church where i grew up yeah at seven years old i was able to say hey you know this is a decision i think i'm ready to make and um but yeah i was i was seven i got baptized on mother's day I don't know. It was probably, let's see, probably 1985 or six, something like that, maybe. Um, and uh, like I said, the the week after in the bulletin, there was this two or three paragraph article about why we like proudly label ourselves fundamentalist, why we don't think fundamentalist is like a bad word and, and why, you know, we're happy to be fundamentalists. And uh I had no clue, of course, at that age or at any point growing up um, through youth group and, and young adult programming that that was a, a thing to be wary of, but um, that's kind of the context that I grew up in. Um, I, my, probably my, you know, about that same time, somewhere around five, six, seven years old, I can remember going on a, a play date with some, um, at the home of uh, our associate pastor, and uh, they had two kids, a boy and a girl, um, the oldest of four kids. Um, and uh, I, I remember my, my baby brother, who, of course, is not a baby anymore. He probably doesn't like me telling the story very much. But back then he wasn't potty trained and he had an accident. And, um, just because mom evidently didn't have a change of clothes, um, ended up changing into some of their daughter's clothes, who was you know, about his age and size. And I can just remember something in my mind just fired in a, in a way that it never had before. And I thought, wait a minute, like, that's something you can do. That's allowed, you know, um, of course, uh, I didn't I didn't know what to make of that. Um, but and I certainly would have been raised with this notion that like God doesn't make mistakes. And if God um, if God saw fit that you should be born as a boy, that you should always be a boy. But I think I would have said in those days if I could go back and be like physically reborn, like to step out of existence and step back into existence, I would much prefer to do it as a girl. And, and when did you know that that was a reality for you? I mean, when did, was it, you know, it sort of, it ceased to be looking at somebody wearing girls clothes as a little kid and knowing yeah. that that was you. Um, oh gosh. I mean, that that's taken a long time. Um, that sense never really um, went away. You know, you're, you're, you're socialized to assume that, oh, this is just a phase, you'll grow out of it. Um, or that there's something um, broken or weird about you that is not, not valid. I, you know, one of, the, one of the first friends that I came out to um, was somebody that I had spoken to before about, you know, we, we had some pretty deep conversations about how I would rather be a woman. Um, I asked her 
you know, all those years when we were having those conversations, did it ever occur to you to say, well, you know, honey, I think you might be transgender. And she said, no, honestly, I just thought you were really weird. And, um, and so that's kind of, you know, I, being a child of like the 80s and 90s, the, especially growing up in the context I did, it was next to impossible to get to a place where I could have accepted that, that I was transgender. Um, and honestly, yeah, I felt like I was just weird. And um, I spent, I guess, a lot of my, um, a lot of my 20s um, getting married, starting a family, starting a career, finishing university, finishing seminary. Um, and, and, uh, continue to work towards that straight into my thirties. And in my mid thirties, I immigrated here to Canada to take a job at a wonderful church, um, full of just delightful people. And, uh, I, I guess, you know, maybe a couple of other, maybe a number of other trans folks, maybe cis folks too, can relate to this notion that we, we, um, try to answer every other question in our life instead of the really big question. And um, I certainly um, don't feel the sense that my call to ministry was a distraction or, or that somehow that calling is invalid. I, I felt that as um, at about 11, 12 years old and have been following it, I think pretty faithfully ever since, but um, somewhere in the pursuit of that calling, I lost touch with this other part of my identity that um, I feel just as deeply and profoundly as my sense of gender, and that's my sense of vocation. And you've talked about that a little bit. You were quite young, so for you, it was a straight road into college, seminary, etc. What what you know inspired you to come to Canada? And by the way, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to the Radical Reverend Show. I'm talking to Junior Joplin, um, who has made history here in our province by coming out. Uh, as a trans woman to her congregation, June 14th. We we're going to hear that sermon at the end of this show. What made you come to Canada? I mean, surely there are a lot of calls in the United States. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, one of the, as a matter of fact, there's a, there's a Baptist history teacher down at our divinity school at McMaster Divinity who says that the southeastern United States is probably the most Baptist place on the planet. Um, I think I saw the numbers once that in South Carolina, which is just to the south of where I was born, um, something like 40% of the population at one point would have said that they were Baptist. And I, I don't know like what percentage would have also said they were like other denominations of Christian, but they're just, they're everywhere. Um, almost every church in my hometown would have been Baptist of some variety or another. So yeah, certainly there were a lot of, I guess, opportunities. Um, the denomination I was connected to, which was a more left-leaning uh, kind of group that got exiled from the Southern Baptist Convention when they took a really hard fundamentalist right turn uh, in the 70s to 80s and 90s. Um, most of their churches are located in North Carolina, Georgia, South Carolina, you know, generally the Texas, Southeastern United States. Um, when I was in seminary, I really fell in love with church history. Um, I was the TA for our church historian, uh, Dr. Phyllis Rogerson Pleasance, and she was one of my favorite people and helped me, I guess, discover these companions across the history of the church, especially early Baptist history. You know, there, there are a lot, you talk to a lot of Baptists in the South and they'll say, well, John the Baptist was the first Baptist. They're always, you know, we've, we've just always existed. We're the real church and everybody else is just a pretender. 
But the truth is we're pretty new to the, to the landscape. Like the first Baptist congregation was gathered sometime around 1607 in Amsterdam. And they were really radical. I mean, that's a word I know that you love, but they were, they were part of uh, what we would have called the radical reformation. And um, as the, as we became numerous, as we became kind of the de facto cultural Christian church of the Southern United States, a lot of that um, radical nature that we valued and that was such a, a, a core part of our identity when we were this fledgling minority um, advocating for, among other things, like church-state separation because we were being persecuted by, um, and that, at that time, usually it was Catholic or Anglican um, uh, states. Um, as we grew and became uh, culturally significant and kind of, you know, got a place in the cultural driver's seat, I think we misused that in a lot of ways. Um, and so in, in, I can remember reaching out to my denomination and saying, I would like to go and serve somewhere where there aren't a lot of Baptists. And so what I meant by that at the time was, you know, I'd like to go to New York State or New England or the upper Midwest or um, some other part of the United States where there is not literally a Baptist church on every corner. Um, where you, you really have to be a little bit more deliberate about your choice to connect with a Baptist congregation, because there might only be one in the whole county as opposed to one, you know, 50 in your neighborhood. Um, and I was told, well, you know, we don't have very many congregations in those places. And I said, well, it's okay. I, I was pastoring at the time in Richmond, Virginia. I loved the place I was. It was a little draining, but I loved the people and I wasn't in a hurry to get out. I said, you know, just if something comes up, I'd love to consider it. And uh, within, you know, five or six months, somebody reached out to me and said, well, this church outside Toronto reached out to us and they're not part of our denomination, but they were wondering if we could send some resumes and could we send yours? And I said, sure. And thought, you know, this will be a fun exercise, but there's absolutely no way this congregation will ever call me. And lo and behold, they did and um, moved here. And I started, I started in June of 2014. So six years. Um, People forget, I, 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 you know, uh, speaking to Junior Joplin here on the Radical Reverend show, uh, people forget uh, since Black Lives Matter is, has been such a, uh, such an issue and, and at the forefront of our lives for a while now with what I call the uprising, but that that uh, Martin Luther King was a Baptist. That he kind sure of was. gets lost in, in in our history, which is really which is really interesting. Um, really interesting. Do you have any thoughts on that? You've got a Black Lives Matter yeah, right do. behind you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I do. Um, you know, I got to meet a couple of months ago um, a minister who, of course, is retired now. Um, who was on staff with both Martin Luther Kings, junior and senior at Ebenezer Baptist Church down in Atlanta, Georgia, which is an amazing congregation. It's a vibrant congregation, still gathered. I, I've um, been there. I heard his, yeah. I his niece preach uh, years back. But anyway, go on. Yes. Yeah. Um, well, and, and, you know, the interesting thing about Baptists and, and folks kind of maybe don't understand this, um, but, but there's this, they're, they're part of, I guess, what you would call the free church movement. So, Baptists can be all over the place. So just as surely as Martin Luther King was able to, to become like the face of the uh, civil rights movement, 
and other clergy, and notably Baptist clergy. Uh, there were a lot of Baptist clergy who thought he was the devil and who preached openly. Uh, you know, I have um, one of the sermons I keep, you know, in my desk just to remind me of where how far we've come is, like I said, I served in Richmond, Virginia, and there was this larger church in Richmond where in the 1960s, a, a pastor preached this sermon about how racial desegregation was leading to like communism and a new world order. And it was this, it was the sign of the end times. And um uh, at the at the end of the sermon notes, these were apparently published sometime after he originally delivered the sermon, but it said like, you know, I've gotten hundreds of thousands of requests for these notes and they've been circulated. And, and, and so thankfully we don't, we don't remember that person's name. I can't think of the guy's name, um, but that's another example of what Baptist ministers would have been saying in the sixties. And so we can, you know, when, as Baptists, we are free to, um, you know, sit in the pews and listen to sermons from our transgender pastor or to grab a picket sign and go picket pride parades to say that God hates you people. And um, it's a little frustrating because it can become dysfunctional. Uh, we've argued with one another and um, over some, well, uh, really meaningful, but sometimes kind of petty um, issues. But in Baptist life, you're always free to kind of get out on the vanguard. There was no, you know, there was no diocese or district. Martin Luther King Jr. didn't have any denominational higher ups to say, listen, we don't like what you're doing and we need you to rein yourself in. He was free to follow essentially his divine calling any direction that, that he sensed. And, and so um, when it works well, it works really, really well. So to get back to you, Junia, to get back to your story, yeah. um, although I thought it was worth noting because people don't often think Martin Luther King and Baptist in the same breath, and they should. Um, so you came to Canada, you're here with your family, you're mm -hmm. in this church, you've been there for six years. Um, what was the process of coming out for you? What did that look like? Um, well, it started with me just simply admitting, um, really for the first time in my life, that um, this wasn't just me being weird or it wasn't a phase that, um, that I, I really was living with questions about my gender identity. Um, and, and admitting that for the first time was a very difficult, emotionally draining thing. But, um, you know, the first person I told, well, probably the first person I told was somebody behind the, the cash register at Glad Day Books in the village. Um, as there was a day that I um, just realized, oh, I can't, I can't do this anymore, and um, I need some help. And so I, I drove out in there and um, said, I, I have questions about my gender identity. What do you think I should be reading? And uh, they pointed a couple of books out to me. One of the books they pointed out to me is a uh, Janet Mock's memoir, um, Redefining Realness. Um, and they could see that I was really troubled. And so they said, well, you know, the 519, the community center is just up the block and you can talk to somebody about counseling. And so I went and got on the waiting list. And later that same day, you know, my, my spouse could see that I was really troubled. And, you know, a good sensitive spouse will usually say, what's wrong? What's wrong? What's wrong? And they won't take nothing for an answer, you know? And so uh, eventually I, I, you know, summoned up the courage to say, yeah, I've been living with questions about my gender identity my whole life. I don't know what that means from here, but 
I don't know. I wouldn't have said at the time I'm a transgender woman or that I need to transition. It's just like I'm, I'm opening the book on the questions. And uh, I got into some counseling. Um, I got some opportunities to, I guess, um, live into a, what at the time was a different gender role for me, just on a very limited basis. And um, discovered that the you know, started to find some answers to my questions. It takes a while, you know, everybody transitions a little differently. Um, I, I have friends who went from the questions part to the social transitions part, maybe like a week or 10 days or two weeks. And for me, it's taken most of two years. Um, and part of that has been um, because of my career and I wasn't sure how things would go there um, because of where I am in terms of my stage of life. Um, uh, I can remember when I when I came out to my oldest son, um, he totally understood the concept of being transgender, um, but didn't understand how somebody could be 40 years old coming out. It's like, I, I know what that looks like if you're my age, if you're 10, 11 years old, but what does that look like when you're when you're 40? And, you know, uh, for those of us who transition in adulthood, um, transition can be depending on where we are and what we're doing, quite disruptive. So it, it took me a while to get there. And what was the reaction of those nearest and dearest to you? What, what happened there with your, your family? What did that look like? Well, you know, most of the folks that I came out to early were um, colleagues, um, seminary classmates, longtime friends. Um, and they have been, um, every single one of them, loving and supportive and, and gracious. They've been some of my, my, my they, they, they've become closer to me and have become the, the most indispensable uh, supports during this last eight weeks or so when things have really gotten serious, so to speak. Um, and, and it occurred to me that, you know, on some subconscious level, I, I did a pretty good job of building a social circle of folks who, for whom this would not be an issue. You know, I, I think um, it, it wasn't as if I was evaluating friendships based on that potential litmus test, but you know, like uh, I, I did a pretty good job over the years making friends with the kind of people who would say, yeah, you know, I have a friend that's transgender and that's, that's not a big deal. They're just the same. They're, they're, they're a better version of the person they were. And um so that that was really helpful. Um, it's often said that one of the one of the um, one of the predictors of success, kind of however you want to measure that, but one of the predictors that you'll have a a, um, a, a less rocky transition um, is whether or not you have a support network around you. And so I was able to build an extraordinary support network um, that, like I said, includes friends, other pastors. Um, uh, my, my spouse, um, who, you know, she has been, her, her first response was love and support. And, um, we are, we, you know, it's not been easy for, for the two of us. And, and we're looking at what, what, a what a friendly separation can look like and what co-parenting can look like in this kind of weird version of a 21st century family. But, um, we're able to do that on very friendly and supportive and loving terms. Um, and your boys are, are cool. Your boys are good. Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, last night, um, 
Last night I was watching Netflix with my youngest and there's there's this reboot of the Babysitter's Club, which was, you know, the young adult novels from when I was a kid. And um, a couple of episodes into the reboot, there's a there's a, a little transgender girl um, who the part of the plot line is that her parents want this specific babysitter because she's so good with this little girl. And um, so I'm watching that with my my youngest and I said, well, she's transgender like me. And he asked, you know, how long have you known you were supposed to be a girl? And I don't know, that's a, that's, that's a tough question to answer sometimes, but uh, we talked, we've been talking about that stuff for a while. Um, my, my oldest son and I, you, you know, part of the, part of the, um, I guess, groundwork that I did, uh, I would talk to him about, you know, what are the things that you love doing with me? And, you know, he'd list off things. And one of the things was like, playing hockey or watching hockey you know we're trying to trying to fully immerse ourselves in that part of Canadian experience so shortly after um, I came out to him we went on a little road trip down to Detroit this was right before everything shut down because of COVID and um, I said you know I'm going to be mom for the whole time I'm going to be June for the whole time and we're going to go see our favorite team which is the Carolina Hurricanes because that's where my roots are and the Detroit Red Wings and visited a, a transgender friend of mine in Detroit who's a single mom. And so just immediately kind of started to normalize it. And he said something to me on the way home that really touched me. He said, these past couple of days have been, I've had just as much fun as I always have with you, except I'm with a girl this time. And I think that's, that's a great way to say it, I think. It's a beautiful way of saying it. Yeah, yeah. So so let's get back to your, your day job now as mm. pastor at Lorne Park Baptist Church, uh, speaking to Junior Joplin here on the on the Radical Reverend show, and she came out to her congregation June 14th. So leading up to that, what was that like? Knowing that it was coming, the date was looming, uh, and even with COVID, et cetera, et cetera, you were still going to go ahead. Tell us about that. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, my church was founded in uh, May of 1920. So, um, and and I think the beginning of its its the planting process started in May of 1919. So we spent from May of 2019 to May of 2020 celebrating our hundredth anniversary. And um, meanwhile, I'm, I'm I'm having more and more serious thoughts about gender transition and thinking to myself, okay, this is a really, this is a meaningful celebration. This congregation has been doing amazing ministry in this part of Mississauga before Mississauga was even Mississauga, right? Um, and and whether whether it's seen as a positive or a negative, it's just, it's going to be a big thing. And I don't particularly want to introduce this into the life of our congregation in the middle of this celebration. So we were set to have this kind of culminating celebration the first Sunday of May in 2020. Um, and I, I kind of saw that as a, as a, as a, a mile marker of sorts, you know, if, if I can help lead the congregation past that, then I can comfortably, you know, come out and um, whatever happens happens, but it won't take away from this very important. I think, you know, special celebration. So, um, and then of course COVID happened. The The banquet that we were supposed to have in May, had in May is uh, postponed for a date to be determined. We postponed it for November 1st and then we looked again and said, you know, we probably won't be able to do it in November. So 
Um, I don't know when it's going to happen, but um, it, it'll happen someday. And I thought, well, I don't know what, I, I don't know how to do this now that we can't be church in person. Um, we can't gather in the sanctuary. Um, on the other hand, I was doing work from home and I had, you know, come out to both of my kids and there was nothing stopping me from socially transitioning. So essentially I socially transitioned back in March at the beginning of work from home and would only present mail on Zoom calls with folks from church. And uh, it, it was a pretty strange turn of events from early days when I would occasionally present female uh, to like, I'm only presenting male on Zoom for church things. And I thought, you know, maybe I can keep doing this for the duration of COVID till everything gets back to normal. And um, that, that became increasingly um, untenable. I mean, the changes in you, Junior, physically have been dramatic anyway. I mean, yeah, yeah. You know, uh, so, <laughs> I, so did you, did he, was anybody questioning this? Did anybody like ask? Um, the questions have all, there haven't so much been questions as there have been retrospective observations. And there were a few folks who said, okay, that makes sense. Or, because yeah, my, my appearance is changing. I mean, that's one of the things that hormone replacement therapy does, um, regardless of when you start or, um, you know, developmentally where your body is, it's gonna, it's gonna make a difference in the way you look. And um, it, it, it's, it gets harder and harder to hide. Um, but if you're not looking for it specifically, you're not likely to see it. Yeah, got it. So, so you came out to your parents and then you came out to the congregation and we we're going to hear that sermon in the second yeah. part of this, of the show. Um, parents, and then what has the reaction been since you came out from your congregation? What's happened? Well, we're still talking about a lot of those things. Um, we have a, um, a really wonderful and gifted executive council that functions as church leadership and, uh, they, they have crafted uh, and created space for dialogue that I think has really been helpful. Um, and it's, it's all still kind of in process. Um, and there's still, there's still some unknowns ahead of us. We don't know what's going to happen like later this month or next month or, or much less four or five uh, years down the road. And, by, and who will be making that happen? Is, is this denomination or is this congregational? No, that's another, yeah, that's another, another thing about being Baptist is like, I'm not employed my, by my denomination. Um, it, there, there is some history. I don't, I don't know about Canadian Baptists, but like where I'm from, I know that, um, there have been instances where ministers have come out as usually gay or lesbian. Um, and then it's not so much that the denomination fires that minister as they will, you know, kick them out of the denomination. So there, there will be no formal association. And I, I, you know, honestly, I haven't heard anything about whether or not that's a possibility here in uh, my context, but no, the, the, the decision is the congregation's decision to make. Um, and, and so they are, you know, I think to their credit, they're, they're weighing decisions about the future very, very carefully, 
very thoughtfully. They're trying to make as much space as possible for questions to be answered, for concerns to be addressed. Um, they're, they're, I am trying to be as available as I possibly can. I've spent a lot of time sitting socially distanced on patios or back porches from church members this week and just been trying to listen to their questions and address some of their concerns. And um, I, I know that I'm not necessarily hearing from everybody, but I'm, I am hearing a lot of love and support. And at the very least, I'm hearing a lot of kindness and respect. Um, you, you know, the, the evening after I delivered my sermon, um, there, there was a congregational letter that um, said, okay, here's what we're thinking of doing moving forward. And it used my name and used my pronouns properly. And so um, that that's really an amazing thing in and of itself. Um, so, yeah. You're in the midst of a miracle unfolding. And Maybe so, whatever yeah. happens, Whatever happens, I mean, the pastoral care that you're providing for everyone and the education and the consciousness raising is, is pretty spectacular. Um, so we just have a couple of moments uh, left before we're going to go and actually hear Junia's coming out sermon, which I thought you did so beautifully well Thanks. and biblically. Um, and uh, and, and I, I don't think fundamentalism is is a bad word. I've always said that I think I wish fundamentalists would be more fundamentalist. Right. Uh, that they'd actually read the Bible instead of proof texting from the Bible. But yeah. I mean, uh, uh, because of course everything's in there. Um, but just set the set the scene. How must you have felt that morning? And then just immediate thoughts going in, immediate prayers going in, and then immediate response right after. Um, well, I had reached out to a number of friends and said, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be coming out my sermon on Sunday. Here's a way that you can tune in. You know, I recognize that because of Zoom and well, because of COVID and us doing church on Zoom and YouTube, I had the opportunity to um, speak to a lot more people than I normally would on a Sunday. And I, I recognize that faithfulness in, in this context would be more a matter of me just speaking important truths rather than like preaching a June saves her job sermon, you know? And so I thought about, I thought about being 11 years old, feeling uh, the sense of call to, a call to ministry and just this sense of deep incongruity that I could never communicate with anybody about my gender identity. And I thought, you know, what would I have wanted a pastor to say to me? at 11, and I tried to put that sermon together. And immediate reactions after? I mean, I think the last time I checked on YouTube, there were over 13,000 views yeah, of this sermon, which is probably a whole lot more views of any sermon that have been <laughs> given at Lauren Park Baptist ever. But, but so, yeah. but, you know, um, but what were the immediate reactions of people? Like, did people reach out? Was there silence? Yeah, yeah, well, uh, you know, the, the other thing I did as soon as as soon as I was finished preaching and before the end of the service, I had sent uh, letters to uh, my staff, the executive council, and one generally to the congregation with similar but like distinct messages. And um, I started to get responses to that letter and responses to the sermon. And um, like I said, the folks who've been most eager to respond have been the folks who would say that, you know, I immediately started getting emails addressed to Pastor June, which I thought was pretty That's amazing. Beautiful. And um, mostly what I, what I heard initially was um, 
love and support. And um, yeah, it was really overwhelming. I, 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 was, I honestly didn't know what to expect. Um, there were folks who said, you know, I think, I think you're going to be okay. And there were folks who said, boy, I'm really worried about you. And um, a, a lot of that support network that I mentioned earlier drew really close to me um, in, in like the 48 hours or so before that Sunday. I had a big Zoom conversation with just all these folks who love me and I love, and we just, they just shared like words of blessing and, and support. And um, one of my dear friends who's written a story about me, um, <clears throat> she and I got on, um, got on Zoom together. Like at, it was like four in the morning here in Toronto. She's in Los Angeles. So it was maybe like one or two in the morning there. And we just talked for a while and it was, it was just kind of small talk and she prayed for me and, just, it, it was just this um, sacred gesture of nearness. And so I, I definitely felt, I was terrified, but I, I kept saying to folks, I'm trying to, I'm trying to summon up courage on behalf of all my LGBTQ plus siblings in the church who never got to tell their stories. And perhaps that's the best place to end. I've been speaking here on the Radical Reverend Show to Junia Joplin, uh, pastor at Lauren Park Baptist. We're now going to hear her coming out sermon. Please stay tuned. Well, um, this morning's gospel reading is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 13, uh, verses 1 to 3. And then I'll move down to um, verses 44 to 46. So let's listen together for the word of the Lord. That day, Jesus went out of the house and sat down beside the lake. Such large crowds gathered around him that he climbed into a boat and he sat down. The whole crowd was standing on shore. Jesus said many things to them in parables. And then Matthew 13 just goes on and on and on with one parable after another. The setting changes. And there's two a little later in the chapter that I want to share with you. And so down to verses 44 to 46, Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that somebody hid in a field, which somebody else found and covered up, full of joy. The finder sold everything and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. When he found one very precious pearl, he went and sold all that he owned and bought it. Now, may God bless us in the reading and in the hearing and in the living of God's word. And at last, wrote the poet Audre Lorde, you'll know with surpassing certainty that only one thing is more frightening than speaking your truth. And that is not speaking. Tell the truth. When I took a course in seminary called The Life and Work of the Pastor, our professor offered us those three simple words as one of the most important rules to guide us as we prepared to enter our sacred vocations. Tell the truth. What we learned as we continued to sit under that professor's wisdom was that when he admonished us to tell the truth, he was not letting us in on the secret to smooth sailing through life and ministry. Not at all. You see, back in the 1960s, when he told the truth to his all-white Southern Baptist Church, when he told them he thought it was wrong that their church bylaws made it so that black people could not become members of the church, 
And when he told them that he was going to work to change those bylaws, he got himself into a fight that consumed a whole 10 years of his ministry career. Ask the prophets what happened, uh, what happens when you tell the truth. Jeremiah will tell you about it from down in that well that they tossed him into. Ask women what happens when they tell the truth about harassment and assault, often to find that they've only become the targets of more harassment and more assault. I guess telling the truth is easier said than done. Maybe truth-telling isn't valued as highly as we like to think. Maybe my teacher understood this, and maybe that's why he was so determined to imprint those words upon us. Tell the truth. When you live much of your life in the pulpit, you're constantly dealing with the temptation to sidestep or gloss over or to make compromises with the truth. You've seen and you've heard about how it can go wrong. So you develop a preference for truthiness instead of truth. That's a word that Stephen Colbert coined about 15 years ago. Truthiness is that which seems true without having to actually be true. Sometimes um, it's easier to be truthy in the pulpit or here on camera than it is to be truthful. And the justifications for this are many. You got to pick your battles. I just don't think my people are ready for that. Change comes slowly. If you say it that way, you're going to lose people. Nobody's going to listen to that. Nobody wants to hear that stuff. It's too controversial. It's too political. People come to church to feel good. It's not worth the trouble. It's too risky. The Brazilian priest and liberation theologian Dom Helder Camara once said, when I give food to the poor, they call me a saint. When I ask why they're poor, they call me a communist. That's the kind of thing that you say when you've learned how costly speaking the truth can be. Now, I'm afraid that a great many of us preachers and a great many of us believers, too, would rather hand out food than confront challenging truths about hunger and poverty. Or, as we are discovering in this tumultuous season, we would rather take comfort in our insistence that all lives matter than confront the hard truths being told when people proclaim Black Lives Matter. Tell the truth. Recognize, however, that it comes with a cost. Now, speaking of cost, Jesus in his wisdom once said that the kingdom of heaven, like truth, is costly. God's great dream for the world, Jesus said, is like a hidden treasure in a field. It's like a, a, a pearl so valuable it can put a spark in the eye of even the most seasoned collector of pearls. It's out there to be found and it's beautiful, but it's going to cost you. Now, Jesus loved to tell those kinds of stories. They were a trademark of his. I read from Matthew chapter 13 um, just a few moments ago, and that chapter goes on and on, listing one story after another, with a couple of verses of interpretation kind of tossed into the mix. But more often, it's the case that these stories, these, these parables, don't include any kind of explanation. Instead, they invite us along our own journeys of interpretation. They're like sacred setups. And Jesus is often counting on his hearers to start making their own connections and thinking about their own punchlines. So with that in mind, sometimes I wonder about those two treasure seekers in the parables that I read today. Something in their decision making seems rash. Foolish, even. 
After all, these are two stories about people liquidating all their assets, selling off all they owned. How did that even work exactly? How long did it take? And, and how could it have possibly happened quickly enough that they didn't stop and think, wait, am I sure about this? This is a rare and precious treasure for sure, but is it precious enough to justify selling off everything else? A field with a treasure in it is lovely, I guess, but, but what am I gonna eat and where am I gonna sleep? Or this is an exquisite pearl, no question about it, but is it really worth selling all my stuff and emptying my bank account? At least the other guy got a field. You can't build a house or grow food in the middle of a pearl. These people seem like they are making such crazy decisions. And yet, for some reason, Jesus wants us to know that this seemingly indefensible risk is actually a lovely example, a fitting example of what God dreams about when God imagines what creation could be. That's what the kingdom, the family, the beloved community of God is like. Because sometimes God calls us in the direction of something that's so beautiful and so precious, something that enkindles such abundant and undeniable joy. Well, you just got to point yourself in that direction and go. It's my belief that we are all treasure seekers in some way or another, seeking something that is precious, something that is beautiful and true. But I'm not so sure our stories look like the ones that we've heard from Matthew chapter 13 today. I don't think there are many of us who would grasp at treasure with such wanton abandon, no matter how much joy it might promise us. My suspicion is if we were living out either of those parables, our conditioning would kick in and we'd manage to talk ourselves out of it. We'd remember how much safer it is to settle for truthiness instead of truth. How often we've seen the world make an example out of the risk takers and the dreamers and the prophets and the poets and the rebels and the pastors too and probably some other people that you know. So my suspicion is we'd let that treasure go. We'd let that treasure go and maybe we'd give it a passing thought now and then perhaps we would lament our missed chance a moment or two before the cynicism within us spoke up and said, it, it really wasn't worth it or it would have never worked, you know? We'd believe that voice. And we might even convince ourselves to put those thoughts out of our mind entirely, to busy ourselves with other pursuits, lesser pursuits. It's sad, isn't it? It's sad to think about all those missed chances, about all the treasures left, un, left buried in unpurchased fields, about all the precious pearls left unsold. And it would be very sad indeed if that's how the story's ended. But God is love, friends. Our scriptures tell us so. And our scriptures tell us also that love never ends. And so here's our good news, because our source of endless love will never be content with stories ending that way, with treasures undiscovered, with precious pearls unsold. 
Jesus reminds us in some of his other stories that God is relentless about such pursuit. So maybe that pearl has to sit in the case at the jewelry store for a while. Maybe the dream has to go undreamed. The truth ends up not being spoken for a while. Just know that God, the wildest dreamer and most persistent treasure seeker of them all, isn't one to give up. God is the one who makes a way where there is no way. God is the one who knows you more fully than you know yourself, the one who knit you together in your inmost being, the one who made you fearfully, wonderfully. That God has a way of guiding you by the same fear and wonder to the place where you will find your treasure, to the shop where your pearl just happens to be for sale, to the moment when you can't do anything else but speak your big, risky truth, no matter how much trouble it gets you into. I stepped up into the pulpit for the first time when I was 11 years old. I'd been listening to what I was certain was the voice of God. I heard that voice calling me to be a pastor, and that's what I did. I've been following that calling and finding my way into one pulpit or another for 30 years. I thought that was my treasure, and it was, sort of, but there was more. Maybe I didn't realize it at the time, but there was more. God had more to say to me back then than you're supposed to be a pastor. The fullness of my treasure, the wholeness of my truth, wasn't entirely clear in those days. So in much the same way that we settle for truthiness instead of truth, I settled for part of a treasure, half of a treasure, a, a pearl that was nice enough, but not the kind of precious that sets God dreaming. Ultimately, graciously, we are led by the divine treasure seeker to that place where at last we know with surpassing certainty that only one thing is more frightening than speaking our truth, and that is not speaking. Even if the cost seems too high, even if the consequences seem too great, even if the landing seems too hard and the leap of faith God wants you to make feels like madness, God is not going to stop calling us. God isn't going to let up until you've arrived at that point where you accept that it's time to cash out your accounts and say, all right, let's buy that pearl. I've been thinking about that point for a very long time. It's a point that I suspected I had let pass me by. But God is gracious, and God makes a way. And friends, with the divine joy of one finally getting her hands on a most precious pearl, I want you to hear me when I tell you that I'm not just supposed to be a pastor. I'm supposed to be a woman. Hi, friends. Hi, family. My name is Junia. You can call me June. I'm a transgender woman, and my pronouns are she and her. That's the treasure, folks. That's the truth that I can't help but speak. Until now, I didn't know how or when or whether to speak. I thought it was impossible. I thought it was sinful. I thought it was too costly. But I have learned, and I have grown, and I have discovered that the only thing that costs us more than buying the treasure God creates us to find is not buying it. 
in sharing this truth with you today, I'm saying that I want to be the person that God created me to be, that I want to experience the health and the wholeness and the abundance of life that Christ has been calling me to experience since the time when I first believed and followed. I realize, of course, that I might be taking an enormous risk here, that possessing this pearl may truly cost me everything. It's scary, but I read someplace that love casts out fear. So if you're listening to this message and you're part of the Lorne Park Baptist family, another truth that I want you to hear me say is, I love you and I still love being your pastor. And I hope that we can find ways as a family of faith to walk together in that love. I hope that we can model grace and compassion in a way that very few churches have ever done. I hope that we can demonstrate courage and vulnerability and listen together as God calls us to imagine what a vibrant life-affirming ministry can look like here at the beginning of our second hundred years. I had hoped to share this truth with you in person. The onset of COVID-19 closed that door, but perhaps another door has opened. We are living in a world where we're all asking important questions about what really matters, and we're also making broader connections than we ever have before. So maybe you're receiving this message and you're someplace else, geographically, religiously, theologically, socially. Maybe you can give some thought to what you're seeing and what you're hearing. Maybe you're part of another faith community and you're wondering what this might look like at your church. Regardless of how you're connected to me, I hope that by answering God's call and speaking my truth, you might be inspired to do the same. And finally, to my LGBTQ siblings in my family of faith and beyond, and to the millions of you who are or were people of faith, I see you. You're not alone. As an ordained minister of the gospel, as someone upon whom the church has laid hands and said, you can speak for us, I want you to hear me say that you are fearfully and wonderfully made, beautifully made in God's image, a perfect reflection of God's matchless creativity, no matter your orientation or gender. And I want you to hear me say that God delights in you and feels pure joy for you having discovered your treasured identity. I am sorry for the times that you've been lied to about who you are in the eyes of God. I'm sorry for the times that you have been told that who you are is sinful or broken, whether it's some raving fundamentalist in a suit and tie or his kinder, gentler counterpart in jeans and sneakers at the hip church that meets in the movie theater. Those words are not true. They are deceitful and evil, and we have already lost too many siblings to that deadly theology. In particular, I want to proclaim to my transgender siblings that I believe in a God who knows your name, even if that name hasn't been chosen yet. I believe in a God who calls you a beloved daughter, even when your parents insist that you'll always be their son. I believe in a God who blesses you and gives you a home, even if you're not welcome in the place that you used to call home. A God who is relentless, creativity, 
invites you to become who you were created to be, even if you have to risk everything to do it. That's the call that comes to every single one of us, regardless of our gender or orientation or age or ethnicity or status. You are loved, every one of you, loved with an everlasting love. And that love frees you to find your pearl, to become the person that you were meant to be. I don't know what that ministry is going to look like exactly, but by the goodness and grace of Jesus, I'm going to speak that truth. I'm going to share this abundant treasure. And I'm going to proclaim this good news, this gospel, for as long as I have breath. Hallelujah. Praise and thanks be to the Lord, the Holy One, the Creator, the Risker of Risks, and the Seeker of Precious Treasures. Let's pray together. For creating us to seek treasure, God, and for not giving up on us until we find it, we thank you and we praise you. Call us, we pray, to the places where we can speak our truths. Remind us that we are beloved and reflect your wondrous image. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.